It's Monday, June 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. While the majority of people who contract COVID-19 only develop mild symptoms, there are those extreme cases where the virus wreaks havoc on the body. In one such story, we are hearing of a patient in her 20s who received a double lung transplant, the first of its kind in the U.S. since the pandemic began. Tests confirmed that her lungs were beyond repair and she would not survive without a transplant. She is now recovering but faces a long rehabilitation. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, as calls intensify for officials to defund police departments and reallocate that money to other community services, there are some cities that can offer ideas with programs they have already implemented. One such pilot program, which has led to a drop in arrests, is called Right Care in Dallas. On calls responding to mental health issues, they send out a team that includes an officer, a paramedic, and a social worker. It's an attempt to get people help without an arrest or violent confrontation. John Shupi, reporter at NBC News Digital, joins us for some of these programs that don't completely rely on law enforcement. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. For the first time on June 5th, this past Friday, our lung transplant team at Northwestern Medicine successfully performed a double lung transplant on a patient whose lungs were severely damaged from COVID-19. Joining us now is Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lenny. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk to you about a pretty interesting story in the coronavirus world. This is a story of an extreme case. And just so people know, the majority of people experience more mild symptoms. They don't get this bad, but that's what makes this thing so interesting. We just had news that the first of its kind in the United States, a patient received a double lung transplant because her lungs got so bad after having COVID-19. Lenny, tell us a little bit about this story. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, even among hospitalized patients, this woman was one of the more severe cases. She was in the ICU for two months. She was on a ventilator for many weeks. They even had to use ECMO with her, which is a device that takes the blood outside the body, puts oxygen in, and then routes it back into the body, sort of like a heart-lung bypass machine, and helps the heart pump it around. So she was really, really sick. Her lungs were so badly destroyed that her heart was starting to fail. Her liver was starting to fail. Other organs were involved. They weren't getting the oxygen they needed. And basically, she would not have survived without this operation. One of the most surprising things about this story specifically is that she was in her 20s, I think in her later 20s, but still she was very young. I was very surprised when they told us that. I thought she was going to be older than that. Now, they won't put a double lung transplant generally into people in their 70s and 80s, but I thought it was going to be somebody in their 50s, maybe 60s. So when they told us 20s, I was very surprised. She was on immunosuppressant drugs prior to getting sick for a condition that they didn't reveal in order to preserve her privacy. But yeah, you didn't expect someone that young to get that severely ill. It may be because of these drugs or this previous condition. We don't know. But on top of that, too, the doctor who was attending on her said that even though she was on those drugs, she really had no other serious underlying health conditions. For the most part, she was pretty healthy. So it would be very interesting to see if those immunosuppressants played a part in her getting so sick. But for the most part, she was healthy is kind of our understanding of it. 
That's exactly our understanding of it. So it's a little bit unexpected in that way. Now, we do see these COVID cases that sort of come out of nowhere in people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who statistically are not the ones who are getting the most severe form of the disease. But you do anecdotally hear about some people who do get it. So we really don't know right now. You know, in a few weeks, hopefully we'll be able to meet her and meet her family and find out more. There have been other lung transplants associated with COVID-19. This is the first one in the United States that we know of, but there's been one in Austria and China, I believe. So some of those had different cases to them, obviously, but doctors are really interested, you know, just because in some very severe cases, this might be the way to go. You're going to see this more often, I believe. It will not become frequent by any stretch of the imagination. It's not going to be a way to take care of most people, but there are going to be a small number of people whose lungs are so severely destroyed that they would never get off a ventilator if it were not for transplant. I looked at a photo of her lungs and they were just demolished. The virus did such a number on her. She had secondary bacterial infections that they could not control with antibiotics because the blockages and her capillaries were so trashed that the drugs were just not reaching the infections and having any effect whatsoever. So you are from time to time going to see this kind of thing. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw other organs transplanted as well. The doctor said that her lungs developed these strange holes that look like Swiss cheese. I saw some of the x-rays as well, and it's just crazy to think of how this virus can affect the body in so many different ways. My understanding is also that she was on the organ transplant waiting list, thankfully not for very long. Only for two days. Now, the organ transplant waiting list is prioritized by the sickest people. And in fact, there's a category for people who are almost in an emergent situation. So my guess, without knowing for sure, is that she was moved quickly to the top of the list once she became eligible for a transplant and that they got very lucky and found this local donor, both of whose lungs were made suitable for her. It's often hard to find lungs. Compared with kidneys and livers, there's not as many lung transplants in the United States even before COVID. And of course, kidneys and livers, you can do live donation. Lungs, of course, you can't. This is a very extreme case. And I think for me, that's why it's so interesting to know how far this virus can take people. You also helped write another piece just about other people that have been sick with coronavirus for more than 60 days. They don't know if it's the virus is living that long or if it's just kind of it's gone away. But the effect that it had on their body has the symptoms kind of reoccurring. So that's kind of another aspect of this is that it lasts pretty long in some people. As you pointed out a few minutes ago, this is a very nasty virus. And what makes it so nasty is its ability to affect different people in different ways. So you have people who have acute kidney injury. You have people who have blood clots that travel to their brain or travel to their heart. You have people whose lungs are destroyed. And now, again, anecdotally, we are hearing from people who continue to suffer symptoms for 60 or more days. And the symptoms sometimes come in waves where they're bad for a while, then they're good for a while, and they come back again. The symptoms come in ways, different kinds of symptoms each week. So for a while, they're suffering from stomach problems. For another week, they're suffering from respiratory problems. So this virus, if it turns out to be the virus, is a very versatile bug that is affecting people in all kinds of different ways. And we just wrote a story today, as you said, people who have had to endure this kind of stuff for 60, 80, 
90 days and don't know when it's going to end. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Stay well. We have a chance, Los Angeles, and we have a chance, America, to translate passion into progressive reforms, into policies that will save lives, not just in, but notably in policing. Joining us now is John Shupi, reporter at NBC News Digital. Thanks for joining us, John. I'm happy to help out. We've been hearing the slogan uh, throughout a lot of different protests that have been happening in the wake of the death of George Floyd defund the police. And right away when you hear that, the supporters of it are full on board. They want to take money away from police departments and reallocate that money to other services where police might not be needed. But on the other side, people hear defund the police and then you think of no police force. And if you might be in a dangerous situation, there would be nobody to call. There would be no law and order. So this slogan has a lot of problems with it, but the ideas behind it have been kind of in progress in a lot of cities throughout the country. John, you wrote an article about some programs, when you take some money away from the, the police force proper, you can kind of use it to make some of these other programs. John, tell us a little bit about some of these. What we set out to do was just try to look at real-world examples of what, quote-unquote, defund the police would look like. This is a concept that has remained mostly literally a concept and hasn't been explicitly applied to real-world policing or alternatives to policing yet. But when we started to look a little bit deeper, we noticed that there were programs around the country that we could look to as guides to what pieces of, quote-unquote, defund the police would look like. Some share the defund the police spirit. Others wouldn't necessarily consider themselves explicitly about defund the police, but they contain elements. And so the one that we focused on is a program that is a couple years old in Dallas, in which the local Parkland Hospital, along with the police department in Dallas and fire rescue in Dallas, got together to try to figure out a solution to the problem that they had of not having enough psychiatric beds in the city and police having to respond to calls involving people who are in mental health distress. And a lot of those people end up getting arrested and filling up the jails, that causing an obvious problem. So they decided to create an alternative in which a social worker, a police officer, and a medic ride in a Chevy Tahoe and respond to 911 calls involving someone in mental health distress. It's only a pilot program and it doesn't draw money from the police budget. It's funded mostly by a grant, but it does offer a glimpse at an alternative to police simply showing up at the scene of somebody who is having a mental health crisis and using force or arresting that person. It's steering them to services that they might need. And so that is one example that we looked at. Even though it doesn't necessarily defund the police, it looks at a way to use resources in a way that don't involve police responding to something that they don't necessarily need to respond to. That pilot program is called Right Care in Dallas. And that is the sort of plan that I think a lot of people can get behind. You know, as you mentioned, somebody that might be mentally ill or having some type of episode or something, you don't know what the situation is until you get there. So having that team, an officer, a paramedic, a social worker, 
when you get there, you can evaluate it, and the person that is most appropriate in that situation can take the lead. It could be just a social worker that needs to talk somebody down. You know, it could be a paramedic or something, somebody that can deal with a suicide attempt or whatever it may be. Or maybe if something is uh, dangerous, maybe they have a weapon, then the officer can take a handle on that. So that does sound like a good plan that I think a lot of people can get behind. And this is kind of what, at the core of it, a lot of people, when they say defund the police, this is some of those things that they want. They want the reallocation to get these right teams in place. Part of what is driving the defund police movement beyond, obviously, a reaction to you know, systemic abuse of black Americans by police. It's also trying to accomplish something that many police themselves admit to all the time. And that is that they are asked to respond to and perhaps solve many of society's problems, one of them being mental health another being homelessness, another being drugs, that they aren't necessarily cut out to. It's, it's a kind of a response to the sort of creep of police work into so many different aspects of our social safety net. And that is the spirit that Right Care in Dallas kind of connects into. Let's talk about some of the other cities that have been working on this, because these calls are going on nationally. We're seeing this play out in the media and it's being amplified right now, and rightly so. But policing is such a local issue. They can make plans and Democrats and Republicans are going to be proposing plans on how to reform policing, but it's still going to be down to the state and city level for the real change to kind of start happening. This applies across the board, this concept that real experimentation in government and change often happens best at the local level. And I think what our article explored was examples of that. We also looked at a community organization in Salinas, California, which has had its own issues with public distrust of police. And this group that is called Building Healthy Communities, they consider themselves sort of more directly aligned in spirit and in ideology with defund the police. But they also told me that they do not want to come across as cutting the police out of what they do because they realize the importance of police work in the community and hope to use them as a partner. But they have successfully lobbied the local city council and other authorities to stop the expansion of school resource officers, police officers in schools and elementary schools in Salinas. And that is another example of efforts. And that is something that is going is being repeated around the country currently and also being planned in many cities and school districts around the country to stop or curb the expansion of school police resource officers. And that's another example of what used to be, at least in my time, school officials disciplining students has become, especially with sort of the um, proliferation of school shootings, it's become something that police have been asked to deal with. And so there's now police officers in a lot of our country's schools, and that can lead to excessive discipline, especially for minority students. And now there's this defund the police movement is now triggering a lot of acceleration of trying to get the school resource officers, police officers out of the education buildings. And there's a lot of cities that have already pledged to do that, to cancel their contracts with city police. I think Minneapolis decided to do that. Minneapolis City Council also pledged to disband their city's uh, police department. What do they plan on doing? Like when we hear that they're going to disband the police there, what do they plan on doing? We heard examples or comparisons to Camden, New Jersey, and they did something similar. They had high uh, numbers of violent crimes. All that number, all those numbers dropped, 
when they went to, instead of a city-run approach, they did more of a county-run approach. But then costs went up, even in those programs. One of the tricks to all this and what we tried to do in our article is to give real-world examples because there aren't many examples that we can look to, especially with something like just happened with the Minneapolis City Council and expressing a commitment to actually disband the police department. The only analogy we have is what happened in Camden. The circumstances were different, but this was a troubled police department, unable to perform up to the expectations of its city. There was a trust problem. There was a crime problem. And the answer, especially to get around the police unions and the contracts and the pensions that they committed the city to having to spend, they just got rid of it and started from scratch. And although, you know, it's fairly recent that this is, the change has happened, what people in Camden say is that the trust has returned and that's an important step. But in Minneapolis, to go back to your original question, the answer is to how they're going to do it is still up in the air. The details still have to be worked out. And it'll probably happen incrementally in steps, beginning with some more modest reallocating of budget money into social service programs. But then at one point, they're going to have to figure out, they say with the community's input, mostly what the new public safety service apparatus is going to be. And really, I don't think anybody knows what that's going to look like. And that's the difficult thing with the situations that we're currently going through. You know, what happened with the death of George Floyd shouldn't happen anywhere. And there's a lot of momentum behind the movement. There's a lot of momentum behind people really having a mindset shift and really thinking that sometimes police take it too far. But as you mentioned, this has to happen incrementally. And that's the part that takes time. That's the part that you need to keep working with the community and political leaders. The New York mayor has said he's going to shift money from the NYPD budget. Uh, Los Angeles also, Mayor Garcetti, said he's going to pull $150 million from the LAPD budget to boost funding for other services but this is the long part of that process. What parts do you cut from? Where do you reallocate it? And that conversation has to happen with the community so that everybody can at least come to some type of consensus, even though it's going to be tough to make anybody happy really on either side. And this is incremental, I think is the right term to use. I don't think the Blasio in New York has given a money figure, but the money in LA is just a small drop in the bucket. Right in comparison to the larger LAPD budget, it's not going to really impact the LAPD very much. And what people behind the defund the police movement want to see is something a lot more impactful than those gestures that are being made. The fascinating thing that's happening across the country is that it's kind of switched. What we saw in post-Ferguson, the death of Michael Brown and the death of Eric Garner in New York, were calls for internal reforms, which still continue. But with George Floyd, what we've seen is a shift toward, no, internal reforms to the police departments are not enough. We need to do something from the outside to fundamentally shift how we fund and how police departments operate and whether they need to operate at all in the way that we know them. John Shupi, reporter at NBC News Digital. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm happy to help out. And I'm happy to be here. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.